Can you believe it? Two services today. Today is the beginning of our return to two services. And I just want to celebrate that as we have now returned to two services, everything that was peeled back at the beginning of the pandemic, everything that has changed about our church is now back, is now back 100%. Services, ministries, Everything that we once did before, there is nothing that is being restricted right now other than just the little things like masks and distancing and all that. But I mean, like, who cares, right? Like, when I, I don't know about you, when I'm at church, I barely even see these things anymore. And when it comes to those restrictions, I would rather take those restrictions than be restricted than being with the people of God in the presence of God. Can I get an amen to that? So I just want to celebrate that. And I also want to celebrate you because you have been just so amazing over these past 18 months. You know, when you read um, Paul's letters, he talks often in his different letters. He says things like, I thank God. Every time I remember you, I thank God. And as a pastor, that is truly my heart. That when I think about you, I thank God. When I remember you, when I'm on Zoom calls with you, I look at the faces and I just say, thank you, God, for blessing this church, this body with such incredible people. And as a pastor, thank you for such wonderful people. Like, truly, I love you from the bottom of my heart. And it's been just so amazing just to do this with you. And I really don't know how, like, this is not to poke at anybody or point fingers, but how people outside of a body like this have gone through a season like this. I truly mean that, and I don't mean that in any sort of condemnation or any condescending, but just I'm so thankful for the body of Christ. But now that we're back at two services, uh, just a couple like housekeeping updates for you. When you come in, we're going to continue to register for the time being. It's really good and helpful for us to have an idea of our numbers to ensure capacity. So thank you for continuing to register. But when you come, you will no longer be, be checked in physically anymore. Uh, we'll just we'll know that you're here kind of thing. And uh, when you come in, you'll just be seated. So as you can see, there's room now. So it will be a first come, first serve. So if you have that sort of seat that you love to sit in, I just encourage you to come a few minutes early just to ensure that that seat is not taken. Uh, But now that we're back completely, you know, in in so many different ways, uh, we need... Uh, we need volunteers. We need people to come and step out and help us serve. And specifically, where we need help right now is in our area of guest services. So that is uh, everything from ushers, to greeters, to specifically safety team. Like if you want to, men, if you want to make a difference, I know it's not exclusively men, but I know it fits nicely uh, for certain guys. If you want to just help in a small way, come volunteer just as a safety team member. And that just ensures the safety of our campus as well, especially our kids' ministries on Sunday morning. So we could really use uh, some help. So if that's something that just uh, speaks to you, just come see me after service or see Elizabeth out in the uh, foyer. And as well, just another reminder, this Tuesday we have our second Disciples of the Rock uh, small group uh, fitness class for you, 6.30 a.m. We had a nice little gathering on Tuesday morning. I wasn't there, but I'm going to be there this Tuesday. And so, uh, men, ladies, teenagers, everyone, just come on out, 6.30. Uh, There's a time of just like working out together, and then we come together, pray, and there's a short time of devotional. So yeah, 6.30 a.m. All right, well, let's jump into the Word. Let's jump into the Word. So as we begin this new ministry here at Life Center, our unified prayer is this, and we really set the heart for this ministry here last week when we said Psalm 127, verse 1, when when we quoted this verse. It says, unless the Lord builds the house... Those who labor, labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Those three words, unless the Lord, 
are what matter most in this season of rebuilding. That unless the Lord comes, unless the Lord moves, as we sang about this morning, unless the Lord tarries, his presence tarries, unless the Lord builds, it doesn't really matter what we do or don't do. And like we saw in the conclusion in the story of Nehemiah last week, as they rebuild the temple, they reestablished the practice of reading God's law, the Torah. As they rebuilt the walls of their city, despite doing all of this, something was missing. And that something was God's presence. And it is a reminder to us that we can try and build all things exterior. We can rebuild two services. We can rebuild teams and worship nights and services and events and all that stuff. But when it comes to God's presence, unless we rebuild and God's presence is at the center of everything that we are doing, it is all meaningless. And that is why as we begin to rebuild this house, and that is what this season is. You know, this is a season of rebuilding for us as a church. Nehemiah, I believe, is really the perfect book for this church for this season. In fact, when I saw and was reading through the book of Nehemiah in preparation for this, I texted Pastor Jason. I said, yes, you captured the exact thing that is, is in front of us this season. This is the perfect book for this moment. Because when it comes to the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, and I really encourage you just to read these stories this week. And really remember, they're one volume, Ezra and Nehemiah. In our Bibles, they're split into two books. But it's one volume and two chapters. When it comes to these stories, it's complicated, okay? It's complicated. Now, how many of you remember there was a day not too long ago when, when somebody wanted to declare their relationship status, they would go on something called Facebook and they would say, you know, what sort of relationship status they was. They called it making something Facebook official. I know that makes me sound old, calling something, referring to Facebook. But back in the day, teenagers... That is what we would do. We would put our relationship status on Facebook, and you had different options. And things like single, and married, and in a relationship. And then there was this one category on there that didn't really make sense. I never really saw anyone ever do it, but it was, it's complicated. Like, what does that really mean? It's complicated. You know, and if there was a relationship that we had as a church with books of the Bible, stories like Ezra and Nehemiah, it would say... It's complicated. And the reason why it's complicated is because we don't really know what to do with stories like these. I mean, Nehemiah is not really the most well-known or popular book of the Bible. And we don't really, really know how it fits in any sort of certain genre or category. There are no significant stories or moments happen in these books. God doesn't do any major miracles or really any, major, any miracle for that matter. And if Nehemiah has any contemporary relevance for the church of today, it is for his leadership ability. And if you Google the the word Nehemiah, you're going to find many uh, resources to leadership principles and practices from the book of Nehemiah. But the story of Nehemiah is not a story about leadership. If anything at all, what the story of Nehemiah is, is a story about the human condition. And if you and I know anything about the human condition, you know that it's complicated, isn't it? The human condition is complicated. You know, in our human condition, we have good intentions that don't always seem to translate into, you know, good practices or good actions. We get the right pieces in place, but sometimes we put them in the wrong places. You know, our human condition is filled with many dreams and hopes only to be exceeded by unfulfilled dreams and hopes. And this is the story of Nehemiah. It is a story about our human condition condition, about a people 
who've been exiled. And by exile, not just exiled from the land, but exiled from their relationship with God for 50 years because of God's judgment. But now, by God's grace, are allowed to begin to return to the land and begin their relationship with him new and afresh. And like anyone starting out in a new relationship, you know, they wanted to make a good impression. How many of you remember what it was like to go on that first date? You know, you did your hair up nice, put on that nice, you know, outfit, maybe splash a little perfume or cologne on. Guys, maybe you did a few push-ups before the date to get a little pump on. Was that just me? You guys didn't do that? The people of Israel were filled with this new passion and, and love for God. They, they made big promises to him. They fasted, they prayed, they set themselves apart. There was this anticipation in the air that like their ancestors, they could just be on the brink of this national revival, this great spiritual awakening, a new chapter in God's redemptive plan. But then nothing happens. You know, they did the right things, they said the right things, they, they prayed, they set themselves apart, but nothing happened. You know, and, and I think we can relate to that in our story, can't we? We do the right things, we say the right things, but nothing, it, nothing seems to work. At least it doesn't work in the way that it's supposed to do in our favorite Disney films. You know, rather than Nehemiah being carried around on the shoulders of the people in this victor- victorious moment, as we might see in a Disney film, it ends with Nehemiah in angry tears. He's upset, he's frustrated. He prays that God might see his heart was in the right place, and at least, well... He tried really, really hard. Can you relate? Have you ever found yourself in a moment like this? Filled with passion and desire to do something great for God. To see a great move of God. You you showed up faithfully. You prayed faithfully. You served faithfully. You gave faithfully. You had faith. You know, you had faith and you believed that perhaps you might be part of this moment, this revival that defined your generation, that that need, that if you prayed hard enough, that if you fasted, that that miracle might just happen in your midst. And then nothing happened. Or life happened. Or a pandemic happened. This is where we need stories like Ezra and Nehemiah. Because in a culture that has been more discipled by Disney than it has by the word of God, we might equate God's silence with his absence. Or we might equate God moving mightily in our midst, our definition of what it means for God to move mightily in our midst. And when it comes to God's presence, we need to understand that God can actually be more present to us in his silence and in moments of insignificance far greater than you and I could ever know. And just because our story may not always get to the finish line, it doesn't mean that God isn't doing something great within our story. You know, it's like it says in Proverbs 16, 8 to 9, better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. Let me say that again. Better a little a tiny bit, a small step with righteousness, then much gain with injustice. That in their hearts, humans plan their course. But the Lord is the one who establishes their steps. What Solomon says in his wisdom is that better for you and I to play the smallest, most minor role in the story of God than to have the major uh, leading role in a story where God is absent. You know, it's better to have your name at the very bottom of the credits in the smallest of print, that everyone's turned the movie off at this point, or if you wait, you can barely read, than to have your name at the very top in the cast of credits in a story that God is not part of. 
in seasons like these, we will have our own ideas for how to, and to borrow the popular political catchphrase in this moment, build back better. But we must allow God's presence to establish the steps that we take so that we, according to God, we build back not better, but build back according to God's best for us, according to his will and his perfect plan. And here's the thing. It's not like these two things are in direct contrast with one another, right? It's not that uh, in this Proverbs that in our hearts we plan our course, but God establishes our path, that they're always in direct opposites to one another. No. Psalm 37.4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Sometimes what our heart wants is exactly what God's heart wants for us, and those two meet up in perfect harmony. But then there are other times when we don't understand, but God doesn't give us the desires of our hearts. That we delight ourselves in him, but, uh, and we think that our heart's in the right place, but God just doesn't give us the desires. Does that make God unloving? No, I think far from it. In fact, I think that when God doesn't always give us the desires of our heart, that sometimes in those moments he demonstrates just how loving he really is for us. And that is exactly what our story of today is all about. How the people of Israel, they had their hearts set on a certain path. And actually the heart that we're about to see is a heart that is good and even can be considered biblically sound. But God had a different plan, a better plan. And so we pick up our story in Nehemiah chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, Nehemiah chapter 8. And by this point in the story, remember last week we actually said we're starting at the end of the story and we're working our way backwards. Last week the story ended with the work done and, and, and Nehemiah comes back and sees what's happening, how the people have not changed. They said they were going to change, but they didn't change. He's mad. He's frustrated. He's upset. He's throwing things out of the temple. He's just making a big mess. But if we kind of come back a little bit to Nehemiah chapter 8, at this point in the story, the crucial work of rebuilding the wall, as Nehemiah had come to do, he was the cupbearer to the king of Babylon, and he had been given permission to come back and help rebuild the wall for, for security, for, to establish the nation. And so Nehemiah here, the work is complete. The nation of Israel has rebuilt the temple, you know, reestablished the practice of the Torah. Ezra has reignited the Torah practice, reading God's law. And now the, na- the walls are built. And so what the nation of Israel now does is they set their hearts on rebuilding their relationship with God. And you have to put yourself in the story, right? To really recognize what's happening. Imagine you've been away for 50 years from your land, from your home, from your families, from your, from your, from your, like your faith. And they're back and, and after 50 years, Israel is called together in this moment to collectively seek God. They, they assemble together as a nation to set their course on revival. And Ezra the scribe, he begins to read the word of God out loud to the people. And it says in verse 9, as the word of the Lord was read to them, as he read the Torah to them, it says in verse 9 that all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. You know, when was the last time the word of the Lord moved you to tears? When was the last time God's word as you read it gripped your heart with such conviction? This is what was happening in this moment. And in Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 1 to 2 it says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and their iniquity and the iniquities of their fathers. 
What Israel was doing was entering into a national moment of repentance. They took three steps, and these three necessary steps they took are, in fact, the exact three same steps that have taken place. If you've ever studied revivals and moves of God, that every time God has moved, we've always seen these, these three steps taken. They fasted. You know, they set themselves apart, and they stood, and they confessed their sins. You see, many of us, we don't really know what the cost is that comes with revival, that being part of a great move of God. I think what we imagine is that when God moves, like we sang about this morning, it's a result of people who just love God enough, and they come together, and they're worshiping Him, and they're expressing their love, and and God's presence meets them, and it can be expressed in such a way that it is like this tangible, felt sense of God's love for us. You could sense that this morning, couldn't you, God's presence? I think it's really important that we as, as believers really fine-tune ourselves to know as we're worshiping when something, you know, when something kind of sort of shifts in the atmosphere, when something sort of changes. And you can sense, and I believe that that's something we can cultivate as we grow in the Lord. That, and I think there's a responsibility that we all have as believers that we collectively recognize together, we discern together, and that's part of the job of, you know, Pastor Sarah and the team to also recognize. And we said, God's here. God's presence is being felt. And it's a work of grace. We haven't mustered it up. We haven't, we haven't earned it. We haven't, like, done anything for God to come. But God just comes by his grace. But in that moment, because God has come, those are moments we collectively, we press in, right? We press in, and we, it's almost like this, uh, this unspoken agreement with every single person in this room that says, I'm going to worship a little more right now. I'm going to just want, you know, press into God just a little bit more right now. But before we ever get to that moment, and that, and that is what we desire, to, you know, to be in those moments. We want God to move. We want God, like I've heard somebody say that either we're about to enter into what is the greatest spiritual winter of our lifetime or the greatest spiritual revival of our lifetime. I don't know which one it was, the pastor said, but we need to prepare ourselves. I'm believing and praying for revival. But before we get to that place, there's a price that has to be paid, or better said, a yoke that has to be worn to be taken upon ourselves. And it's a yoke of holiness that the world looks at and sees that yoke as being burdensome and unnecessary, antiquated, out of date, unneeded. But you and I, we see it as the most light and easy burden there is. Because we have this awareness of God's holiness, that God has set us apart and said, be holy as I am holy. And being aware of his holiness brings us to an awareness of our sin, and we repent of our sins. We turn away from our worldliness, and when no one else is willing to pay the price, when you know that the work is hard and is lonely, we recognize that it is necessary, and I must count the cost, because I I realize that it's not God that needs to move in our direction, but it's we who are the ones who need to move towards his direction. You know, we call it a great move of God, but what if God calls it a great move of his people? See, it's not God that needs the move. God has always been here. He's always been in our midst. He's always been present. It's we're the ones who come and go from his presence. And so Joel 2, 12 to 15, it's not going to be up there on the screen. You know, that highlights this with the Lord saying, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Lord didn't say, I'll return to you if you do these things, if you repent. He says, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. 
a grain offering and a drink offering. This is what Israel did. They returned to the Lord with fasting and weeping and mourning. And while our culture looks at these practices and sees them as archaic, you know, we recognize that God honors a heart of repentance through fasting. Our culture honors feasting on the pleasures of this world. God honors a heart that is hungry and is willing to fast and to pray. Our culture honors this syncretism that Pastor Jason talked about last week, right? This blending of values and beliefs, and we call it diversity, and, and, we, and we love it. God honors a people who are set up themselves apart, not by ethnicity, you know, not by tradition, by background, who set themselves apart under the banner of Christ, You know, our culture honors those who are willing to stand up and confess not their own sins, but the sins of others, the sins of the people in the past, everybody else's sins but their own. But God honors the people who are willing to stand up and confess their own sins. And notice that they confess the sins of their fathers. You know, it's not that they need to repent of their fathers. Some of us wonder, you know, the the sins of my forefathers, am I responsible for them? No, you're not responsible for them. But I think there is a place for us to stand up and confess it by, by speaking it out, what the sins were and what our sins are. And I think as we come to the, and I'm not saying this in terms of like definitiveness, but the, the, the latter part of the pandemic, as we begin to look at what a post-pandemic world looks like, I think for the church it is really important that we don't just get so excited just to get back to the way things were, that we don't stop and, and have our own moment of repentance before the Lord. That there is things I think that God through this has been wanting to show us and teach us and reveal to us. And I think it would be a great tragedy if we, the people of God, just simply just say, God, that's not necessary. Let's just get back to the good stuff. What are those things? Well, I think that's the role of the prophets, you know, in the body of Christ, those with the gift of discernment in that moment to speak up, to clarify and that we as the people just collectively respond before the Lord. But we come to him, as we read in Joel, you know, we come to him because the human heart plans its course, but the thing about the human heart is the human heart is always changing. But we come to God in repentance because God's heart is unchanging. You know, Joel says, you know, God's grace and mercy is unchanging. So we change our hearts in repentance because God's grace and mercy is unchanging. We change our hearts because God's slowness to anger and steadfast love is unchanging. This is what the people of Israel recognize in Nehemiah, Nehemiah 9, 16 to 17. But they and our fathers, they said, acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck. And they did not obey their com- uh, your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God. But you. He says, but they, but you are a God ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger. See the language coming out again. Stick, bounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. There's much that we can learn from this moment of repentance. You know, in our hearts, we plan our course. And I believe that the course that we set of repentance is a course that God will never reject. God always establishes a, a path when the people of God repent, they come before him, they repent of their sins. That is not a path that God will forsake. But what happens next is a lesson of what We are not to do what happens when the human hearts plan a course that God has not established. And I think this is equally as important for us to see. 
So what Israel does next after this moment of repentance is that they, they decide that what God really, really wants them to do right now is to make a covenant with him. You know, how many of you know there are times where we get so excited in God's presence, we're like, this is what God really wants me to do right now. I remember one time when I was uh, a young, young 20-year-old, and, and I was sharing, I was preaching, and I, I just felt led, like we were leading this prayer for healing. I just felt really, really excited. I'm like, God wants me to take my inhaler and throw it in the garbage. And I said to the people, I said, somebody take my inhaler and throw it outside, throw it away, because I was like so excited. I was like, that's what God wants. And God hasn't healed me of my asthma, and that's okay. But I was just so excited. This is what, they're so excited. They're like, God wants us to make a covenant right now. It's like Peter, when at the transfiguration, you know, sees like Elijah and Moses and fellowshipping with Jesus. He's like, let's make some tents for each one of you. They're so excited. So here's what they do. Nehemiah 9.38. Because of all this, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. You know, wanting God to move, they make a covenant with God, like their ancestors did before. They make this covenant. Now, how many of you know a covenant is really the backbone of the Bible? That God makes covenants with his people throughout history, and and a covenant is an entering into by two parties of this formal relationship that is bound together by these promises. You know, and that's what Israel does. They begin to make all these promises to God. You read it in chapter 10, and it's good stuff. They're like, we promise to not uh, buy grain from other nations. We, or no, we promise not to sell our daughters off to other nations. That's a good promise. You know, we're not, we're not going to mix and mingle. We're not going to, we're going to rest on the Sabbath. You know, when I was a kid, I used to make all these sorts of promises to God. How many of you, any of you ever like make promises to God? Like, God, if you do this, I promise to never, ever, ever, ever turn my back on you again. When I was young, it was always... <laughs> When it came time for me to gather my hockey equipment for a hockey game, and there was always this one piece of equipment that was always missing from my bag because I was a mess and was never organized. And for some reason, it was always this elbow pad. An elbow pad. Archer, you ever lose your elbow pad? And I would be missing. I'd be panicking because like, if you don't have a piece of equipment, if one's missing, you can't play in the game. So I would have this moment where I would just begin to cry out to God. And I'd say, God, if you help me find this elbow pad, I promise to serve you all the days of my life. I will never sin again. I promise. And I did this like many, many times. Funny thing is that I always found the elbow pad right after that. I don't know if that was God's sense of humor. But this is what they do. They make all these promises. They're God... We promise all these things if you just do this, if you just bless us, if you just renew this, this, this relationship with us. And they put all their names on the document. They all get up there and sign their names. I, Terry Burns, pledge to do all these things before the Lord, and they put their seal on it. There's only one problem, one major difference between this covenant that they are making and Nehemiah and every other covenant made with God. God's signature is nowhere to be found. God's signature is nowhere to be found. See, this covenant, while filled with good promises, it was a covenant initiated by the people and not God. See, every other covenant up to this point, it was God who was always the one who was inviting his people into relationship with him, not the other way around. Why does this matter? Doesn't God see their desires? Doesn't God see their heart? Does he know they come from a really good place? And that's exactly the point. When we make promises to God, our promises to God come from a desire. 
a desire to that while God makes a promise to his people, his promises don't come from his desire, it comes from his very essence. And while our God's essence is unchanging, how many of you know that our desires can and often do change, often in a moment's notice? And God doesn't respond to their promises. He doesn't put his name on the document. He just stays silent. But remember today, church, just because God is silent doesn't mean God is absent. God was with them in their moment of repentance. God saw their heart. God saw their desire to rebuild what was once lost. But God doesn't bring them out of exile just to rebuild what was once lost. God isn't looking to do with them what he has already done. God stayed silent in that moment because God wanted to do a new thing, a better thing. See, in their hearts, Israel laid their desire for the Lord to renew, restore the promises of his covenant. But God had a better promise in mind. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. How many of you know that that is such an awesome passage of scripture? I'm just going to invite the worship team up people of Israel wanted to make a covenant with God and they put their signatures on pieces of paper. And God said, I'm going to pass on this one because I got a better plan. I'm not going to put my signature on a piece of paper. I'm going to put my signature upon your heart. I'm going to put my signature upon your heart. And so because of this, even though Israel was still, was no longer in exile, physically speaking, they were still in exile in a spiritual sense. For as great as their promises were to follow God, their hearts remained unchanged. In fact, as many as the promises were, they were no different than their ancestors. And that's why the story ends the way that it does. They make promises to God. Nehemiah goes back for a time, back to the king. And when he comes back, he realizes that nothing has changed from before. These people are the exact same people as they always were. Because their hearts remained unchanged. Israel made big promises, and God stayed silent because he had an even greater promise. God wanted to make a new covenant with his people. A covenant where his name would not be written on tablets of stone like, it, like Israel did, but he would write his signature on their hearts. In our hearts, we like to make big promises, don't we? How many of you know we like to make big promises? But here's the good news for us today. While we make big promises, God makes better promises. And that's the truth that I want to leave you with today. While we make big promises, God makes better promises. And the promise that God has made to us is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, his son. We like to think we know what God should do when it comes to what our hearts want. 
But the task at hand for us today in response to the promises that God has made to us, that is revealed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, is not to forsake our desires. That's not the point. The point is not to neglect or to to push our desires away. No, no. The, the, The task at hand for us today is to take our desires, all of them, the good, the bad, the ugly, the ones that are biblically sound, the ones that maybe are unfounded, and to take them and to place them at the foot of the cross, to baptize them and to surrender them at the foot of the cross, because at the very cross is where God fulfilled his promise to you and to me to forgive our iniquity and to remember our sin no more. It is where God promised to us that we would become his people and he would become our God. And we entrust all these desires that we have at the foot of the cross, because it's at the foot of the cross how we remember that while Jesus was being crucified, He cried out to his father, 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 why have you forsaken me? Why are you silent in this moment? Why are you not saying anything? Why can I not sense your presence? Jesus cried to the Father, but the Father stayed silent. But just because the Father was silent didn't mean the Father was absent. What was the Father doing in his silence? He was doing a new thing, a better thing. And what did Jesus do in his father's silence? As he cried out to God and God the Father did not answer him. Luke 23, 46, then Jesus called out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He trusted the Father. He trusted the Father. Can we trust today that when our requests, our prayers are good, that in our hearts we're in the right place, yet God stays silent. His silence does not equate his absence. Can we be a people who recognize that our desires for the future are great, but God has even greater desires for us than we know right now? In our hearts, we plan our course, but God wants to establish your steps. So will you trust him today that when the steps that you take may not be clear, he will not let you trip nor fall? And can you trust today that even when your steps feel small and significant, God says, I want you to step there. And you're like, that's not even a step. Or that's like, feels like it's backwards. That's not the direct, that's the finish line's over there. The better a small step with God, better a little with righteousness, and the biggest leap forward down a path that God hasn't prepared for you. Would you stand to your feet? Let's pray. We're going to come to a time of communion in a moment. And I just want to say, if you didn't get a communion, the emblem on the way in, the little cup and the the wafer, just put your hand up just in this moment. Just keep your hand up high. There's a few ushers. We're just going to pray, but just keep your hand up in the air until uh, you get one of those. They're going to attend to you here in the moment. But let's, let's just now pause and we'll pray. So Father, Father God, we Lord, we're excited about the future. God, we have big plans. We have big dreams. And we know that some of those dreams will come true. Some of those dreams are just dreams, God. And that's not the plans that you have for us. God, better a little with you leading us than a lot without you part of what we're doing. Better little gain with righteousness than much gain with injustice. That's our prayer today, God. Our hearts, we plan our course, but you establish our steps. Father, establish our steps today, I pray. 
make our steps clear, make our steps known. But God, even when they're not clear and when they're not known, God, help us to trust in you. Father, we trust in you today. That even in times when you don't answer us, times when you're silent, God, we, we trust today that, you are, that you are, you're not absent. Lord, we sang today, this is a move. And we don't say that always because we see it or we feel it, God. We say it because we trust and we know it's true in faith. That, God, we are a part of a move of God. Lord, thank you today that when we want something in our hearts, God, you sometimes say no to us when you have greater things in store. And there's no clear example than the story that we see this morning. Israel wanted to restore a covenant, an old covenant, but God, you wanted to establish a new covenant. So God, if there are desires today that are not what you have for us, Lord, just I pray that they are silenced in Jesus' name. And God, just help us to not just forsake our desires or to discourage, be discouraged in our desires, but just to surrender our desires and say, God, all these desires, Lord, sort them out. I'm a human. I, I have good desires, godly desires, and I have fleshly desires. And sometimes I can't tell one from the other. Lord, just I trust in you, Lord. I trust that you will sort them out. I surrender them. I baptize them. I place them at the foot of the cross. Pray this in your name today, oh God. Amen.